they tell me, Colin and Jesse, they tell me there's a big poll reveal tomorrow, immunity. They tell me the AP poll's dropping. Kind of makes you wonder when the JP poll's dropping. I don't know. When, when I know, you'll know. I do know this. Our All-American team revealed before this broadcast goes off the air. I know that. We're jam-packed. High atop a waterlogged downtown Nashville, Tennessee. It's Sunday night. It's already August 13th, the year of our Lord, 2023. Some of you, I have it on good authority, have football games in less than two weeks. The entire country will be playing in less than three weeks. I got loaded wall-to-wall scrimmage intel. They scrimmaged in Athens and Tuscaloosa and Lincoln and Clemson, everywhere in between. And we're going to tell you what we're hearing. The ear has been to the ground all day. And I'm going to let you know what we've been hearing. A lot of quarterback battles, not controversies, battles that aren't quite shaping up the way the old preview magazine culture told you it was going to shape up. Jim Harbaugh versus the NCAA, probably one of the better rivalries of July and August. I'm going to talk about what I think is actually going on there. We're going to predict Tennessee's record tonight. How good could it be? How bad could it be? What will it actually be? We got what ifs. We got bold predictions. And like I said, we got our All-American teams coming out tonight. At least the offense is coming out tonight. They're watching us in beautiful this time of year, St. George, Utah, Dora, Alabama, Jonesboro, Arkansas, Santiago, Chile. They're all tuned in. Thank you so much. As you can see, and as some of you have pointed out in the live chat, we're about 5K or so away from 200,000 subs. Now, I don't want to put pressure on anyone, but if we don't get there, it will be one of the most devastating moments of my life before kickoff of this college football season. So if you don't do it for yourself, please do it for me. Do it for the Floyd. Do it for the Floyd of excellence back here. Um, We're going to announce the tour at some point this week. The Late Kick store will probably open again at some point this week. So a lot's going on. Make sure you're locked in here. Thank you so much. I don't want to go an hour and a half tonight, so we're going to dive right in. Scrimmage intel is one of the most fun things to gather this time of year because normally these things are closed to the public. However, there's little asterisks on the bottom. If you pay the athletic department enough or you work for the athletic department, sometimes there's a gate open somewhere and you can work your way in there. And that's where the eye, Josh, comes in handy. Have some trusted sources that trust you not to disseminate too many things recklessly. And they'll give you a few morsels. They'll just drip, drip, drip some intel. And that's what we've got. We got a loaded scrimmage intel segment here at Georgia. They've won two national championships in a row. Why not start with the Bulldogs? You know how everyone's talking about quarterback controversies and quarterback battles, and Kirby Smart, I'll speak where he can't. He stepped to the podium yesterday, and he talked about how we still really haven't arrived at this, and we still got guys repping with the ones like that. Carson Beck's going to be the starter there. Now, that's not official, and it hasn't been announced. Take it from me. I'm willing to put 75% of my reputation on it that, barring injury, Carson Beck will be the quarterback there. I got other quarterback battles that aren't nearly as shaken out to talk to you about later. Not that one. That'll be Carson Beck. However, it doesn't sound like they had a great day in Athens yesterday. Now, that's by their standard. And I'm going to talk about that in a second, too. But uh, drops at the wide receiver position were an issue. Now, I mentioned that not because... Uh, They're the first team to ever have wide receiver drops issues in the first scrimmage of fall camp. But this is not Ohio State. This is not a room where I have proven commodities and I don't really care what they do in the first or second scrimmage because I know what they'll do week one, two, and three. I got Lab McConkey. I know I can count on him. He's not an issue with drops. I got Brock Bowers at the tight end position. I know I can count on him. He didn't have an issue with drops either. But they got I got some guys out of the portal like Ra Ra Thomas and Dominic Lovett. Do I have anything proven there? I really don't. A.D. Mitchell's off in Austin, Texas now, so I don't really have anything proven there. I have potential. It's the beauty of college football, right? We cover college college football and we follow recruiting all the time. Therefore, we know when these guys come on campus what we think they can do. It's not the NFL, though. So a lot of times your proven production is from high school or your proven production is from practice reports, and then you get out there and it's 115 on the field and Even your hands are soaked in sweat and you're dropping balls and all of a sudden your head coach is kind of calling you out in the post game or the post scrimmage. I'm keeping an eye on that. There there is immense potential with this team. There's a reason they're going to be a preseason number one. But um, I'm not going to tell you that any coach wants to have a bad scrimmage. That would be stupidity. I ain't telling you that Kirby Smart wanted to have a bad scrimmage. I am telling you he's one of the coaches that stands to benefit the most from his team having a poor first scrimmage by their standards because whether you guard against complacency and whether you guard against entitlement or not a little bit of it is inevitable if you have the best structure organizationally on the face of the earth a little bit of that's inevitable and it's really nice when you've won two of those 
I would say, um, lackluster-looking trophies compared to the crystal football. But nevertheless, when you've won two of those trophies in a row, there's a little bit of that can creep in. So you have to remind guys, you had nothing whatsoever to do with that. This team hasn't accomplished anything. You know the talking points. I'm really interested to see how that wide receiver position shakes out uh, because it sounds like the running back position they hope will get healthy. I'm not sure that's going to be an elite position for them this year. It'll be plenty good enough. But the wide receiver position, I think they've got a lot of potential in that room. Like I told you in the spring, I think Georgia's wide receiver room has the raw potential to be the best they've had under Kirby Smart. doesn't really matter what potential you have if it's not realized. All right, let's head up the road a little ways uh, to a place where there resides a team that Georgia should probably play out of conference every year. But that's when I'm college football commissioner. In the meantime, Clemson had a scrimmage yesterday. Listen to this quote. What a paper popper here. How about this quote from Dabo Swinney? No context, Dabo. I wouldn't be surprised if we try a field goal from 70 yards this year. Really? Well, there is a kid by the name of uh, Robert Gunn. Is this right, Jesse? Robert Gunn? Yeah, he's the kicker up there. And, uh, I mean, apparently if Lane Kiffin had him in Oakland, a few of those actually would have been good. So I don't know if they're actually going to attempt one from 70 this year, but he looked good. Sounds like the offensive line looks really good, deep with quality options. So those are the good things. And you know when I skim over good things, it's normally so I can get to the less than good things. Wide receiver seems to still be an issue for them. And we're going on several years now. Uh, It's just, when I look at them, in their vintage years, I, I look at that team that beat Alabama. I look at those teams that went wire to wire with Bama in 15 and 16 and then blew them out in 18. What a miserable trip that was to Santa Clara for almost all involved. I think to myself, wow, they had future Sunday guys everywhere on the perimeter. And now I look at them and I think to myself, are there any future Sunday guys on the perimeter? And by the way, that's not a this year thing. That's been a last few years thing with very limited exceptions at Clemson. So I keep hoping to myself, maybe it's foolish of me to do it, but I keep hoping to myself, either they'll just strike gold in recruiting or, and I want you to close your ears up there in South Carolina, or maybe they'll go in the portal for guys. It's not illegal, uh, but they're not doing it. So they have what they have there. Bo Collins, Antonio Williams, Adam Randall, those are probably your projected starters And it really doesn't sound like anyone did anything special in the scrimmage yesterday. Uh, That's not the end of the world. Like I said, if this were the Ohio State receiver room, I would not care if Marvin Harrison Jr. had one catch for 28 yards. There is not a Marv in the Clemson wide receiver room. Few truths in an uncertain world, but one of them is there's not a Marvin Harrison Jr. uh, pretty much anywhere else, but there's not one or one remotely like him at Clemson. Jake, man, the tight end. I want you to uh, keep an eye on him. He's from Brentwood, Tennessee. That's why I want you to keep an eye on him. Jake Brenningstool is the tight end there at 6'6", that is going to be a very, very pivotal player for them this year. He was good in the scrimmage yesterday. And also, if I'm halfway right about what I'm saying with the wide receiver position, he's going to have to be an integral part of the passing game. So, yeah, we got Garrett Riley over there at OC. And, yeah, we hope Kay Klubnick can be the, the version of himself that we saw come out of high school. But you got to have guys on the other end of that transaction to catch the football. At Auburn, big head scratcher on Saturday. Big head scratcher. I'm just nervously playing with this piece of paper in front of me, uh, not because I'm nervous. I couldn't care less. I am doing my impression of Hugh Freeze. You cannot will a depth chart into looking the way you want it to. Okay, everyone can pencil in their depth chart. Everyone can draw it up like you think it's going to play out. Here's the problem. Eventually... They roll the ball out there, and you got to strap it up, and you got to actually make it pan out that way. And at Auburn, the quarterback battle is not working out the way that I think the head coach there wants it to work out. And if I can be selfish for a second, and I rarely am, as we all know, uh, if I can be selfish for a second, it's not working out the way I needed it to. So I came on here, what, like seven days ago, and I told you Robbie Ashford's probably not going to be the starting quarterback for this team. And I'm not sure why I just said probably, because I absolutely said he's not going to be the starting quarterback for this team. Yeah, well, here's the problem. Um, Robbie Ashford didn't listen to me. And Peyton Thorne, when I said I thought he was going to be the starter there, I don't think he listened to me either. Or if they did, they really didn't take it to heart much. We come out of yesterday's scrimmage. Well, let me, let me rephrase. We go into yesterday's scrimmage at Auburn 
And it looks like for all the world that Peyton Thorne is the guy who's, who's going to be the preseason number one and he'll probably hold on to QB1 the entire year. I think that's what Hugh Freeze thought. I think he's been as open as he can about that. Well, then they have the game yesterday, and uh, the problem is Peyton Thorne, the transfer from Michigan State, is the third-best quarterback on that team right now. Holden Grenier, better than Peyton Thorne yesterday. Robbie Ashford, better than Peyton Thorne yesterday. Now, I think you may listen to me if you've been pretty dialed in, and you may say, well, what's the big freakout for? I mean, didn't he transfer in after spring? Is it the wildest concept in the world that a guy that has not even taken spring reps, much less real-life Saturday reps with this team, is a little bit slow to you know, just, just be molded into the Auburn starting quarterback? Yeah, yeah, that's in a normal world, though. We don't live in a normal world. We live in the portal world. And in the portal world, you're just supposed to be able to go like that and everything works. Everything's not working like that down there. I Let me say this. I'm not going to talk about the regular season yet because they do have another scrimmage coming up. That next scrimmage. If, if Cole Kubelik ever wanted to be of use to this show, he needs to burn one of those texts to me tonight or next week on the Sunday show letting me know what's really going on down there with the quarterback position. I know he knows people at Auburn. I'm told he did something there once upon a time. Miami, A.J. Allen had himself a day. That is a transfer running back from Nebraska. Now, you may remember we were down there. Yes, of course you remember. If you watched the show, you remember we did a show from there about two months ago. And the day before the show, I went in the facility and I did a really long sit down with the offensive coordinator there, Shannon Dawson. We cut that down to about 30 minutes. So I had Bradley, the associate, go and scan through the whole thing today. And I said, Bradley, find me the part where Shannon Dawson talked about the run game. Bradley, he, he he's really enthusiastic and he walks out of the office. And then he's dragging his feet back in. He says, I can't find it. And I said, what, what are you talking about? And I didn't realize the conversation we had with him about the run game. It did not make the final cut. Well, allow me to share what he said that didn't make the final cut. I asked him, what's the one thing that will change the most about your offense this year? He said, we'll be able to run the ball way better than we ran it last year. I think that offensive coordinator down there knew about guys like A.J. Allen. That's what I think. I think they trust their offensive line a whole heck of a lot more than they did this time last year, too. Run defense is going to be the biggest potential Achilles heel for Miami this year because they got great pass rush potential. But as Meemaw used to tell me all the time, Joshua, you have to earn the right to rush the passer. If you can't stop the run on early downs, you don't get to pin your ears back on third down. Meemaw would have been an all-world defensive coordinator. She chose another route. She chose nursing, so she never put on the headset, luckily for you offenses out there. I, I can see a world where they're good enough, they're good enough in run D, and then they, they have havoc providers on third down. Or I can see a world where they're giving up ridiculous uh, yards per carry numbers defensively, and you can't realize the full potential of that pass rush. But either way, it is good that we have some guys breaking out offensively. Also, they had multiple wide receivers with explosive plays in the air yesterday. So that's always good. It's a work in progress, but that's always good. We continue. What happened at Alabama yesterday? You might wonder. I buried this a little bit into the segment um, because, as you know, we have a quarterback battle happening at Alabama. Uh, you remember when, Ty when uh, Tyler Buckner transferred in here from Notre Dame? You remember how I had a bunch of questions that we presented on the show about where Jalen Milrow was going to transfer, where Ty Simpson was going to transfer. And I said, why do you think they're going to transfer? <laughs> I never thought Tyler Buckner was coming in to win the job. That's, that's, I never thought that. I don't think that now. So maybe I was in the minority. Um, I, to this day, don't think Tyler Buckner is going to win the starting job there. I've been back and forth pretty famously at this point on whether I think Milrow, I guess I got an eyelash on my, on my nose. I, I've been pretty back and forth on whether I think Milrow or Ty Simpson is going to win that job. And, um, it sounds like Jalen Milrow had himself a pretty good day yesterday. And I do think his skill set, if you think about what this offense is going to be this year, and I think Nick Saban's told you, we've told you over and over on this show, it probably fits what they're going to do this year better. But I will reiterate, as I have a million times, this will just be a million and one, I think they've done everything they can possibly do there not to give Ty Simpson that job. That's not the way it works at Alabama, nor does it work that way anywhere where they win a lot. But the path has been cleared. 
you know, the sling blades out in front, all the sage brushes out of the way. He's been given an opportunity. He has not taken it yet. And I don't think he did anything more to take it yesterday. And so if they had to tee it up and play, I think Middle Tennessee State is their opener, uh, probably start Jesse at quarterback and it would be okay. But I think Jalen Milrow would start for them today. Sounds like he had the best day yesterday. But here's the point. Beyond the quarterback battle, their offensive line, I have told you several times in the spring and summer, I think is going to be quantum leaps improved, at least to the naked eye, as, as opposed to what you've seen the last couple of years. And it's only because I think they will be dedicated to a style of play this year and, and ded- dedicated conceptually to the style of play since spring this year that they haven't been. Because they had a kid named Bryce Young there. So they go like seven or eight deep with guys they trust along that offensive line. There are a lot of battles happening, but like, you know, Caden, whether Caden Proctor can start at left tackle is the most first world problem imaginable because of who you have there if he can't start there. Whether Darian Dalcourt is going to start for them is one of the most first world problems you can have because they're starting everywhere else in the country. So I say that to say when I get feedback from Tuscaloosa and people say, hey, man, we got like three or four really high caliber SEC running backs on this team, too. I say, really, do you? And then the rest of the country will find that out. And I think it's the style of play they'll have this year. So I say all that to say, I think they can win with Ty Simpson or Jalen Milrow at quarterback, given the style of play I think they're going to incorporate. But as we know, with that style of play, there is low margin for error. If they do it right, they can do it as effectively as anyone. Low margin for error. There's not a whole lot of bail me out at the quarterback position at third and 11, you know. So we've seen it before. I think they can do it again. Uh, it looks like it's starting to round into form there. What about Texas? Texas quarterback situation, not at the front, but beneath the surface. So at the front, Quinn Ewers is going to be their starter this year. Again, barring injury. But in spring, Malik Murphy showed off big time. Meanwhile, Arch Manning sounded like he was drinking from a fire hose in the spring. Not the biggest surprise in the world. I think people had warped expectations because he's Arch Manning. So it's not spring anymore. I checked the calendar today. I had stats and info confirm it. We're in fall camp. And Arch Manning had a pretty good scrimmage yesterday. Not battling at the moment for the starting job. But remember, Jesse, I think it was was after spring. Or maybe it was in spring. So... Sark said that there was still a quarterback battle. There was competition at the quarterback position. And I, we talked about it on the show. I look in the comments, and we got like a million people saying, nuh-uh, how can you have a competition at quarterback? You know who's going to start. And I said, knowing who your starter is doesn't eliminate competition in the quarterback room. And I kid you not, we had a fight. Like, we had a verbal fight in the comment section from people saying, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The definition of competition is to be fighting over a position. When you know who's won the job, the competition is over. Competition is not a race. Competition is a culture. And so Arch Manning knows that. Everyone at Texas knows that. So he's bought into it. And he never stopped competing. And lo and behold, looks like he may be making a move on the depth chart. I don't know this because it was one scrimmage yesterday. But he has apparently gotten leaps and bounds improved from what people saw in the spring. Again, he's a true freshman. This should not be that big a surprise to everyone. We also know the quality of competition. He played in high school, was very much at the forefront of the debate about whether he should or should not have been the number one player in the country. My argument on that was always, you are who you are, despite your competition level, you are who you are. So keep an eye on that for future reference. Keep an eye on that. They had A.D. Mitchell step out yesterday and shine. A.D. Mitchell's the transfer wide receiver from Georgia. Not a surprise. Xavier Worthy, excuse me, Xavier Worthy, uh, I think was limited yesterday. My man won't be limited during the season. Okay, take it from me. I haven't spoken to him, but just take it from me. I've taken it upon myself to speak for him. If you're my dark horse preseason Heisman candidate, hand to God you will have a very healthy season. So I'm not worried about this. But in the meantime, it sounds like A.D. Mitchell had a really good day yesterday. They love Alfred Collins on defensive line. He's 6'5", 315. He's from the class of 2020. That's the guy when I talk to some people around Texas that they say, just circle Alfred Collins. They're going to be... Man, I'm talking a lot about Texas here in the the positive, but I think they're going to be really, really good. If they have Alfred Collins and they have those guys it looks like they have on the interior of their defensive line, 
I know it's been easy to run on Texas in the past. I don't think it's going to be so easy to run on them this year. And so I think about that when I listen to what I heard from the scrimmage yesterday. I think about Anthony Hill at linebacker, Jonte Cook at wide receiver, Malik Muhammad out there at corner. There are a number of true freshmen that are going to be impact players here. So we had Sark on the show last week, and you may remember he said, we've got like a perfect mix of veteran guys and then really, really a young infusion of talent that's about to happen. And that's kind of how their scrimmage played out yesterday. I wanted to hit one more. Let's go to Nebraska. Xavier Betts left the team. Xavier Betts gone. And he was a guy at wide receiver that figured to fit into their starting rotation. Now, I irresponsibly, I didn't make a call on this today. I probably could have, but we were swamped. And so I just know for personal reasons, he's left the team. That was confirmed by Matt Rule. And then Matt Rule went on to confirm they're probably going to need two true freshmen, minimum, to step up and play meaningful downs for them. Um, Malachi Coleman, maybe one of them. So again, we're in somewhat of a rebuild mode at Nebraska. Not quite torch the barn, kill the rats, burn it to the studs and build from scratch. Not quite that, maybe culturally, but not quite that in terms of talent roster. Over under is six and a half wins, but the defense won the scrimmage. That's a headline from all over the country yesterday. The defense did win the scrimmage. Whew, scrimmage intel. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. We finally start to learn some things. We finally start to be able to mold our predictions responsibly instead of just trusting magazines. Appreciate you guys being tuned in live. If you are, we've got a uh, jam-packed show. And I I badly need you to subscribe to the channel. I want you to subscribe to the channel. Truthfully, we'll get by either way. But I want you to subscribe to the channel. So please do it if you haven't already. And like the video while you're here. So what we have seated immediately to my left is a chalice of supremacy. You've seen one of these before if you've watched the show. Not for sale. But they can be won. And the rules on how to win a chalice, because one of you asked me this week. The rules to win a chalice are very simple, but also very, very vague. You have to somehow, some way, promote this show in a public manner. And I don't mean stand out in your front yard and hold up a poster if you live in a cul-de-sac, because there's not enough traffic coming through there. So, so we have to get some eyeballs on this. We have to get some ears on it. But you need to find a way... Someone put a t-shirt on their dog the other day, walked it in the park, and said, you can't pet the dog unless you subscribe to the channel. So people have gotten really creative with this. Travis Broussard got creative with this. Colin, do we have the video? So Travis hits me up and says, I talked to my boss, and I talked him into putting the show on our billboard rotation. And there it is. If you're listening on podcast, we got a random indoor gun range being advertised, and then all of a sudden it transitions, and it's our banner for the YouTube channel. It gives the time. It gives the call to action to subscribe, and there it is right there. I don't know where this is. I'm going to pretend it's in Times Square. I don't know where it is. I just know that this is paid state material, and this has gotten Travis Broussard II, I want to be respectful, a chalice of supremacy. It's just that simple. Shipping information has been sent. It's been relayed to producer Jesse. Travis, your chalice is on the way. Drink responsibly. Next up, we are going to dive into a great big bag of what-ifs. And the first one would shake some of you to your very core. Because I happen to know some of you hate Brian Kelly. And then I happen to know a few more of you don't like him. So think about this. Tanner hit us up. He said, what if LSU wins the SEC? He didn't say the West. He didn't say, what if they go to Atlanta and get skull drug again? He said, what if they win the SEC? Well, that would be the definitive arrival of LSU back to tier one of college football. They certainly, I would, I would imagine they make the playoff if they win the SEC. Like, whomst doesn't these days if they win the SEC. Brian Kelly's perceptional transformation, I, I think, would also kind of be complete at that point. The perception, let me take a second here. So the perception of Brian Kelly when he was at Notre Dame was one thing. And then the mistake people made is when he, when he went to LSU, They thought the version of Brian Kelly they had seen at Notre Dame was his legit under-the-surface personality. No, no, no. What you're getting at LSU is the real Brian Kelly. He he had just tightened the sweater vest a little too tight up there at Notre Dame. I'm not saying that's the wrong way to do things. Like, I I happen to love Notre Dame. I happen to think I'd be a half-decent head coach at Notre Dame. I respect the traditions up there. I'm just saying some guys are a little looser, and they pretend to be a little more 
for lack of a better term, uptight. And Brian Kelly goes to LSU, and all of a sudden he's loose. He's enjoying things. He's enjoying life, and people think it's fake. It's not fake. You're getting the real Brian Kelly now. Well, anyway, if they were to win the SEC this year, the folks who dislike him for non-football-related reasons would, at that point, have to just shut up. What can you do at that point? The guy just won the SEC, and he won it at the expense of Nick Saban in this scenario. And this is its own set of issues for Alabama, by the way. Uh, It looks like he won it at the expense of Kirby Smart in Georgia, maybe? Like, can you imagine that run? You go through FSU and and at Ole Miss and Alabama and Florida and Texas A&M, then maybe you go to Atlanta and you face Georgia and you win all that. Mm, Those soft SEC eight-game conference schedules down there. It also means those portal defensive backs came through with flying colors. That's what happens. That's the what-if scenario if LSU wins the SEC. Next up, why stop at conferences? Let's just go right to the college football playoff. Marcus hit us up and said, what if Oklahoma makes the playoff? Hmm. Well, they would virtually have to win the Big 12. I don't think, I don't think an at-large is making it from the Big 12 in a four-team field. Now you may hit pause here and you may say, well, that's a, that's a pretty ignorant thing to say. An at-large just made it last year. I know, friends, but you need to understand something. You are not always what your record says you are. And in this particular case, Oklahoma plays one Power 5 team with a preseason win total over eight this year, and that's Tejas. So if they lose to Texas, then first off, they're, they're kind of behind the eight ball there for a lot of different reasons. But also, if they lose to Texas, where's the best win they have? And so I think they got to win the Big 12. I think they have to do that. Uh, maybe they lose to Texas in round one and atone for it in the conference title game. I guess that could happen. But Dylan Gabriel has shined in this scenario if they're in the college football playoff. Also, defense, defensively, they, I was about to say defense has improved. Defensively, they've massively improved. I know there's a lot of focus on the offense out there. Defense was atrocious last year. Like, woof, atrocious. So it has to have massively improved. And... Speaking of perceptional transformation, what you saying about Brent Venables? If OU's in the playoff, and then think about this. So this is the one that Marcus didn't want to do. He didn't want to go this far with his what if. But I'll do it for you, Marcus, because I'm operating consequence-free here. It's just what if. It's like, what if I robbed a bank? You can't call the cops because I didn't do it yet. What if Oklahoma wins a playoff game and Brent Venables does something Lincoln Riley never did in Norman, Oklahoma? And then you want to know the real what if in all caps. What if they beat USC? That's a bridge too far. Let's move on. Uh, the anti-producer Jesse special is next up. Because one of you accused us of, of some, some pro-Penn State handling on the show. And the allegation was that Jesse has sort of infiltrated the production process and he has he's wiped any negativity towards Penn State, and he's basically operating as a shadow promotional puppet for Penn State University within our midst, which is a tall allegation against someone that you still can't even prove exists. So if Penn State, well, this is the what if from David. What if Penn State loses to Michigan and Ohio State? If this happens, this is an uncomfortable but necessary stat to read you. If they lose, Penn State loses to Michigan and Ohio State this year, James Franklin would be 4-14 and against those teams. Not great. Um, it could be the most hollow 10-2 and season ever. You would have some, some really ridiculous conversation happening about whether James Franklin's the right guy for the job. Again, even if they go 10-2, and they're doing it with Ryan Day right now. You know good and well they do it with James Franklin. And then I would just beat it down like a pinata like we always have to do on this show. I need to know how they lost. That's what I need to know. I need more from this what if. I, don't, I need to know if it's 49-14 or, or I need to know if it's a couple of three-point games either way. Now, you may say, doesn't matter, Josh. You are what your record says you are. A win is a win. A loss is a loss. In the standings, that's true. But if we're talking about the perception of a coach, if we're talking about how close a program is, that stuff matters a whole lot. Michigan State's a good example. Michigan State last year lost a lot of games, but they got blown out in them. So I don't look at them the same way I would look at a team that lost five games by a combined 17 points. You know where I think one bob, one bounce of ball here or there 
could just change the trajectory of a season. Well, if Penn State were to were to lose by three TDs apiece to Michigan and Penn State, or Michigan and Ohio State, man, mm, that's tough. That's a tough pill to swallow. Even if you did win the other ten, but if they're close back and forth. I know it's hollow. I know it, it's like eating a sandwich where there's nothing in between. It's just bread. But 2024 is a season they've kind of been building towards up there anyway. It just so happens that they should be really good this year as well. What are we going to do? Are we going to look at 10-2, and two, losing two games to two potentially top four teams, and say, ah, oh, screw it. Just Let's just punt on 2024. No. But at the same time, I get it. Like If you've watched the show a long enough time, you know I always tell you, if you, if you give big, you should expect big. Simple return on investment principles. Penn State folks invest big. It's not too much to ask to be right there in the conversation with those two. Because a Penn State fan up in Harrisburg looks at it, or up in Bethlehem looks at it, or York, or Wilkes-Barre. I'm just throwing out Pennsylvania geography at this point. But they look at it and they say, what does a Michigan fan give that we don't? What do those folks in Columbus give that we don't? They think this way at Texas A&M, and they're right. What are they giving elsewhere that we're not? Well, the answer is nothing. And so if the answer is nothing, then the follow-up phrase should be, all right, well, shouldn't we expect what they get? Shouldn't we expect some of that? Yeah, you should. That's why I'm not always the first to, to rush to the drum and, and beat the drum that, oh, you guys, are, you guys are myopic. Oh, you guys are, your expectations are way out of whack. Hey, maybe in some cases they are. I don't think it's an out of whack expectation for a Penn State fan to say, I think every, every few years one of these division championships should be ours. I think, I think uh, we should split with Ohio State and Michigan on average every year. I don't think that's out of whack. And I think they have a reasonable chance to do it this year. Uh, how about this last one? Go out to the West Coast for a second. James said, what if Oregon State versus Oregon decides a Pac-12 title berth? Firstly, James, I want to tell you, I think I was well into my 20s before I understood that there was a version of the word birth that had an E in it. I'll just be up front with you about that. So James nailed it. And James is saying Oregon State versus Oregon. It's Black Friday. Friday, right after Thanksgiving, last week of the year, rivalry week. James is saying this game is going to decide half of the Pac-12 championship matchup. One last civil war before Oregon jets off to the Big Ten and Oregon State falls off into the Pacific, figuratively. I, well, I would be entertained by it, but I'm already entertained by it because, you know, I do this crazy thing where I just love college football, so I'd love it anyway. But if you put these implications on it, wow. Now, I don't know that I could ever envision a program and a team in a more us-against-the-world mindset at that point than Oregon State. Think about this. You got Oregon State versus Oregon. Winner goes to Vegas for the Pac-12 championship game. And you're looking across the state now, and you're looking down at Eugene, and you know whether they win or lose this thing. They got all the Nike money in the world. They got new facilities popping up. They got a new uniform every five minutes. They're off to the Big Ten. They're fine. They're going to be fine. Let it work. It works. It works for Oregon. It don't work for us in Corvallis. This is it for us for a little while. And so you're talking about if you had a third middle finger, you'd throw up all three of them in the case that you won this game because you're the one they didn't want. You're the one people have looked at and said, oh, well, let's just watch them fade in the dust. Um, but you, you end up winning it as the curtain drops on the Pac-12 as we know it. You end up winning that thing. And then maybe you go and you win the whole thing. Maybe you win the Pac-12 championship. Maybe, again, since this is what if, we can just do this. Maybe I look at that odds board Colin just threw up to win the Pac-12 championship. And I look at Oregon State there at plus 1,200 odds. What if the old Beavs, they just... They just thwap, thwap, thwap their way to a Pac-12 championship, and they go to the playoff. The Pac-12 hadn't been there since Washington in 20, what, it was 16 or 17. What if they're the ones who do it, and then they look around afterwards and say, oh, we don't have a conference anymore. Okay, cool, great, all right. That's why what if is fun. You notice none of that was predicted. It's just a what if. I'm trying to fix my screen over here. The live chat looks very lively tonight. I'm sure Bradley's in there closely moderating it, though. I'm sure nothing inappropriate is happening in there. Academy Sports and Outdoors, always appropriate. Why? Uh, well, because they have everything you need. That's why. 
Academy Sports and Outdoors, I had one of you hit me up the other day, and I think you got a kayak or a canoe. can't remember which one. It was a really, really big flotation device, whatever it was, and it was up on top of the camper or up on top of the Jeep. You guys had a great time. All the assorted paddles and whatnot were available as well. I know if you hear sports and outdoors, you think to yourself bats and balls. You think, you know, a basketball goal. Uh, you may think of football. You may think cleats. Yes, in abundance, they have all of that. But they've also got some stuff maybe a little bit off the beaten path that you wouldn't necessarily think about. And I had one of you, um, man, I meant to put it on the show. I had one of you hit me up. It was, again, a cautionary tale of going to a rival competitor loosely named after the male anatomy. I don't want to get any more specific than that. And they, they had what you wanted, but they may not have had it in colorful enough supply and assorted enough supply. Also, the price was a little bit too steep for you. And what did you do? You said, before I give up completely, let me try Academy. Shop them first, shop them last, just shop them. And you did, and you found what you needed and the size you needed for a little bit less. Now, this sounds a lot like the testimonial I told you about the other night, and you may think I'm repeating the same story. I'm not. I get that story all the time. I may start screenshotting it so that you believe me, because we could never fake that, of course. Uh, but Academy Sports and Outdoors, your one-stop shop for all things outdoor sporting goods plus. And if you can't get there in person, academy.com has you covered. All right, why don't we talk about some NCAA-related matters? I'm not talking about realignment tonight. Don't worry, kids. But what I would like to do is I'd like to go in the mailbag, and I'd like to look at what Jim asked us. Colin, here's your end point. Jim from Macomb, Michigan. Good people in Macomb. Jim asked us, what do you think of the Harbaugh NCAA news? Now, this has been a fairly big story in college football but it's not big enough where all of you know about it. So, you know, Jim Harbaugh and, and Michigan were being investigated for some potential rules violations during the COVID visitation period where everything was as fluid as fluid can be. And the allegations were they texted a recruit during a time not allowed. They had analysts serve on on-field roles. By the way, just let me cross my arms and shake my head. I mean, I don't know for the life of me who else has ever had an analyst serve in an on-field capacity. I go to these college practices, and let me tell you, it is assistant coaches and head coach only, whistle around the neck, get all those analysts out of here. You better not be coaching that linebacker. No, 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 just Michigan, and Michigan alone. I hope I've been pretty clear with the sarcasm. They also had coaches watch players work out via Zoom. Again, just tantamount to allegations that should send you to Guantanamo or Alcatraz if either were still open. So they're being investigated. And then Jim Harbaugh says, I didn't do anything. And um, the NCAA didn't believe it. So they've been negotiating a resolution. And Dan Wetzel from Yahoo Sports reported, I think last week, they had reached an agreement. Yeah, it was two weeks ago because it was right before Big Ten Media Days. They had reached an agreement reportedly, where Jim Harbaugh was just going to sit out the first four games of the year. So they had negotiated a resolution. He's going to be suspended against, Colin, do you have the schedule? It's like, I know East Carolina was in there. Uh, Rutgers was the only conference game. I, I don't have it memorized because it's, it's Michigan's schedule. East Carolina, UNLV, Bowling Green, Rutgers. That's why I didn't have it memorized. Thank you, Colin. So they weren't going to lose any of those games. Well, update. There is no negotiated resolution, and there is no an agreement on anything. So Jim Harbaugh now is expected to just coach the entire year with Michigan, and the story is this may not get resolved to 2024. Naturally, inquiring minds want to know one thing and one thing only. Where in the world is Jim Harbaugh going to be in 2024? Because he tried to not be at Michigan in 2023 and 2022. Didn't matter. Or 21 and 22. Didn't matter, really because um, it didn't stop him from winning the Big Ten and going to the playoff both years. But if you're like me, you don't necessarily think he's done flirting with the NFL. I think most Michigan fans understand. If you've tried it a couple of times, there's an interest in the NFL. By the way, I don't know if it's known out there or not, because I have not listened to a lot of other commentary on that. Jesse, you can, you can tell me if I'm wrong here. Do people know that Harbaugh got offered the Denver job? Like, Do people know that? Is it well-known? Do people talk about that? Well, let me tell you, 
Harbaugh could have had an NFL job this past cycle. If you didn't already know that, I'm telling you, he could have had that Denver job. The Denver job just sucked, so he didn't want it. So I think he'll continue to flirt with it. But in the meantime, it looks like we're going to kick the can down the road on the old negotiated resolution. Oh, wait, there's not one. So now we're going to go before the COI, which is an acronym, COI, for Committee on Infractions, and they'll hand down a verdict. I like the approach. I told you from the outset, I give nothing to the NCAA. Respect included. I give nothing to them nowadays. We did a panel. The uh, Recruiting and Personnel Symposium was in Nashville this past weekend. And that's essentially where you get a bunch of people in a room who actually are in the weeds, on the ground, day-to-day, working in college football, and actually do have some tangible solutions and answers. Naturally, there aren't NCAA officials within five city blocks of the building, because the last thing they'd want to do is be exposed to good ideas. So I'm over there, and I'm moderating a couple of panels, and we were talking about some of this, and how antiquated the approach is, and how ridiculous some of the approaches are. But also, I was talking to some folks not on panels, sort of off the record, from certain institutions lately that have had to deal with the NCAA. And their thoughts were, what if you just, you didn't budge an inch? What if you lawyered up, which Harbaugh has done, uh, Tom Mars, maybe you've heard of him. And what if you really challenged them the same way that some universities already have in the past? Uh, I, I am telling you, the answer is they fold like an accordion. This is not an institution with a spine. There's a reason you don't have a face of the NCAA. You, Charlie Baker? Charlie Baker's not running NCAA investigations. You don't know these people. You don't know them for the same reasons you really don't know a lot of people administratively who get bills passed in Congress. Uh, they're not meant to be seen. They're under the rock. Like when you pick up the rock and you turn it over, this is really mean. I don't, I don't literally mean that there are those kinds of things, but, but I'm telling you, These are not people who like to operate in the light. These are folks who need to stay in the shadows of college athletics. And if you put them in the light, if you really put the pressure on them, they'll fold. They'll fold. And I think that Jim Harbaugh will either find that out the easy way or it'll be irrelevant because he goes back to the NFL. But either way, I just ask you this. Imagine the conversation. Like Jim Harbaugh, knowing what you know about him and his personality, Jim Harbaugh, with his representation, is sitting in a room, and whether digitally or in person, there are NCAA investigators asking him to admit to level one violations. And it's almost like when Pam uh, tried to become the office administrator when there was turnover at Dunder Mifflin, which became Sabre. She just, she wants a raise. And she realized that as management had changed and ownership had changed, she saw a vacuum. She saw a hole and she just said, I'm going to make the new management and ownership think I've always been the office administrator. And I'm going to tell them I make a certain amount a year. And hopefully that with all the chaos going on, they'll just believe it. And it worked for a while. But then HR started to call her out. But here's the thing about HR. They didn't have evidence. They didn't have proof. So what happened is you get Gabe in a room and you get Pam in a room. Or in this case, you get Harbaugh in a room and you get an NCAA investigator in a room. And the NCAA investigator played by Gabe is saying, why don't, why don't you just admit what you did? And Harbaugh, played by Pam, sort of squints the eyes a little bit. And they realize, oh, wait a second. They don't have the goods on me. They just think they know something. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to admit anything. I'm not giving them an inch. And if you got something, throw it on the table. And then they get really uncomfortable because you're just supposed to play along. And Jim Harbaugh, played by Pam, is not playing along. Uh, that will probably end the same way it did for Pam. She got her job, she got her salary, and Jim Harbaugh will be fine. The end. You learned everything you need to know about NCAA procedures tonight if you're brand new to college football. They're watching us in Denham Springs, Louisiana, Nashville, Tennessee, and Inwood, West Virginia. Thank you guys so much. If you're tuned in live, I wish I could put the kissy emoji. Bradley, if you're in there, could you put the kissy emoji in there for me? I just like to be really lively in the live chat. The University of Tennessee had a good last year, didn't they? They really had a good year. So they went 11-2. and two. Director Collin got to see multiple games in person from field level. And also, they got the NCAA investigation behind them. So what does 2023 have in store? Lots of people are hoping that 2022 was sort of a, an aberration, a flash in the pan, if you will. And the reason sounds a little something like this. 
We already have to deal with Bama and Georgia in this conference. It looks like LSU is very quickly about to reestablish themselves. We cannot have Tennessee to deal with as well. But you may have Tennessee to deal with. They had the best record last year they've had since 2001. Y2K was not too far in the rearview mirror the last time Tennessee won 11 games. I think it's fair to say that I just paused for a hiccup. But I also think it's fair to say there is still some doubt around this program. There's still a little uncertainty. I have some. So I'm about to tell you the best case record for Tennessee this year, the worst case record, and what I think the likely outcome is. So best case for Tennessee this year, I think is 11-1. and one. I don't think it's that hard in theory to see how this would go. So Joe Milton, in the best case, just explodes. And if he explodes, then all those wide receivers pan out. Dante Thornton, remember, he transferred in from Oregon. And so Squirrel White's there. Uh, in this scenario, he just bursts onto the national scene. Brew McCoy's there. Ramil Keaton, like they have a, a three or four-headed monster in the receiver room. They're good. Also, I think they need to split the games against Bama and Tuscaloosa, and then they get Georgia in Neyland Stadium late in the year. And they also need to show legit separation from tier two and tier three. So Tennessee, to go 11 and one, they need to be up there with Georgia or Bama or, or replace one of them in any given year. That's what they need to do. They can't be amongst, you know, like um, they can't be amongst LSU and Texas A&M or Auburn or whoever ends up making tier two and tier three this year. There needs to be separation. That's how they go 11 and one. But in the worst case, Colin, I want you to keep punching the show, but plug your ears in there. The worst case for Tennessee this year, I think, is 7-5. and five. And in theory, this one's also easy. It's just the exact opposite of what I said. This is the scenario a lot of people are hoping for outside of Knoxville. And that is Joe Milton is not Hendon Hooker. And that is, it wasn't a system thing last year as much as it was a really good player thing. And so, with Jalen Hyatt gone... You can't fill that void like you thought you could. With Hendon Hooker gone, you can't fill that void like you thought you could. Maybe the wide receiver room's just down a notch. Maybe defense doesn't improve any. Maybe defensive line is too thin. Maybe that defensive back room is still a liability. Maybe the offensive line battles that we've been talking about throughout fall camp, maybe they just yield an average result. Maybe we find out it was just a battle of a bunch of fairly good to kind of good. That's your worst case. And then also, as always, in worst case, injury happens. So seven and five is the worst case. What is the most likely record for Tennessee this year? I think the most likely record for Tennessee this year is nine and three. This is not what's possible, mind you. This is what's likely. Nine and three is what I arrived at as most likely. You, you cannot convince me that in the most likely of scenarios, there's not some offensive regression from last year. It doesn't have to be catastrophic, but there has to be some pulling back to the pack. You cannot praise Hendon Hooker and the chemistry that offense had last year in one breath and then also try and tell me, oh, it'll just happen again this year with a new cast of characters. Josh Heupel can be the best in the world, and that's still not the way it works. At Bama and versus Georgia... It's tough to just pencil in a win against either of those. I saw what happened last year, guys. You don't have to remind me. I saw what happened. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, let's say they lose those games. There's still this other batch of games at Florida week three. Like your first time taking, well, they got a neutral site game, but your first time really taking Joe Milton on the road as your starting quarterbacks in the swamp. And that's early in the season where even if Florida's bad this year, they don't know they're bad. What if, what if Florida lost to Utah in week one and they're in desperation mode? They're in wounded animal mode in week three. And you go in there and you're just telling me, up oh, 38-13, we'll roll out of there. Barely a grass stain on the jersey. That's not the way it works in the SEC. You guys know that. So you got them, you got South Carolina A&M at Missouri the week before you go to Georgia. It's not easy. So 9-3 and three is a good year. Tennessee is a very good team going 9-3. and three. That, to me, is the most likely path for them this year. But as I told you, there are paths that go horribly right and horribly wrong mixed in that batch as well. I always picture in the, in the prediction phase, 
I always picture like us dumping a hundred simulations of the season into a barrel, like the NBA draft lottery, and we just spin the barrel or the hopper, whatever they call it, and we pull out one little ping pong ball. And whatever's in that ping pong ball, that's the version of the season we got. There's a 12 and 0 in there. You know that, right? There's probably like a six and six in there. But there's a whole lot of nine and three or eight and four or ten and two. So that's why I went nine and three. It's time. It's time to name the Pate State All-American team offensive side of the ball. We have been very excited about this here. We are a committee of a little over one, uh, but we're very serious about this. So it's not very hard to see where we're going with quarterback. RQB1 is the same one that just won the Heisman Trophy a few months ago. It's Caleb Williams, 42 to 5 touchdown to INT ratio last year. And hungry, too. Like, yeah, there's personal accomplishment, but they didn't even win a conference title last year. Plus, he was hurt in that conference title game. So I love that blend. Like, you've got, you got the best quarterback in the country, would have been the first pick in the draft this past cycle if he was eligible. And also, we've seen him at Elite 11 two years in a row hit the crossbar from the 50-yard line. So not that that matters in the game, but it's impressive nonetheless. But you need to know something about the Pate State All-Americans. This is not a career lifetime achievement award. I care about your stats, but I care about what you're going to do this year. And so this year, Quinn Ewers is my number two quarterback. He's my second team All-American quarterback. I know Michael Penix has got better numbers. I know a lot of guys have done more, but I think Quinn Ewers is going to do big things this year. It's not just because of the haircut either, so you can save that in the comments. Elite skill set. Uh, the cast around him, I think, is where it needs to be. The offensive line in front of him, I think, will be where it needs to be. I thought 2023 was always going to be the year for him. I know because of how many stars were next to his name and how, how high the accolades list was coming out of high school, I know that it kind of got out of whack. This was the year. This will be the year for him. He's going to have a phenomenal season if, if health is not an issue. And I think that while he was the 2022 Big 12 Newcomer of the Year, you could be looking at Big 12 2023 Player of the Year. I think that highly about his potential this year. What about the running back position? You know, Blake Corum was on a roll last year, man. It's a shame he got hurt. Blake Corum was on a roll that may have seen him end up in New York City as a Heisman Trophy finalist. I remember we were at the Ohio State-Michigan game, and I watched him go out and try and warm up. He had knee braces on. He had a knee brace on that knee under his, under his pants, thicker than anything Stone Cold Steve Austin wore during the Attitude Era. Just unbelievable. Tried to go, couldn't make it through warm-ups. All the respect in the world for him. Saw him at Big Ten Media Days a couple of weeks ago. Totally fired up. Uh, love that he gets to work alongside Donovan Edwards so he didn't have to carry it 35 times a game. But total focus. Like, that's my, that's my RB1. That's a first-team Pate State All-American at running back this year. Quinshawn Judkins down in Oxford, Mississippi, is right there. He was, he was at SEC Media Days, actually. It's crazy, by the way. When you talk to people at Ole Miss and they say, oh, Quinshawn, he came in so shy. And then you talk to him and he sounds like he's a Fortune 500 CEO. Carries himself very, very well. He's a sophomore. There are very few sophomores at Media Days, by the way. Ole Miss led Power 5 in rush yards in 2022, number four there. You see his taillights. He's a big reason why. And now he's got a full year in an SEC strength and conditioning program, proper nutrition, yada, yada, yada. I love the fact also, selfishly, for the running back position, that there's not really a prolific quarterback at Ole Miss. At least it doesn't look like there is. So they're going to ride him and ride him a lot again this year. I think Rocket Sanders deserves conversation here. Uh, Nick Singleton, certainly up at Penn State, could end up being the best in the country. Um, they've got, you know, we got a lot of good running backs in college football. But I'm going Corum and Judkins as my one-two. The wide receiver position, probably the easiest starting point in all of college football, aside from quarterback, is to figure out where am I going with my first overall wide receiver on the Pate State All-American team? Marvin Harrison Jr. Put someone in jail if they say otherwise. Marvin Harrison Jr. is a, a generational talent at wide receiver. I don't think I use that word very much, but he is that. Marvin Harrison Jr. walks into our room a couple of weeks ago. We got to interview him up in Indianapolis. He was nervous. I have no idea how. I just know that he walked in. He was, I mean, it's, oh, where, where do, I, do I look over here? 
is, is the mic in the right place? Whew. All right, let's go. I'm ready. And meanwhile, you see him on the field, and he's just an assassin. And I think to myself, how can someone who does what this dude does even care about how he carries himself in this setting? But anyway, Marvin Harrison Jr. is the best wide receiver in college football. Now, number one's easy. Where would you go for number two? Xavier Worthy is my number two receiver on the Pate State preseason All-American teams this year because I believe he's going to have a monster year. I got him as a dark horse Heisman contender. And this is about what I think you're going to do this year, not necessarily what you have done. We had Sark on the show last week, and he said, man, we've put a lot on his plate the last two years, really more so than we should have had to put on his plate. And he's never complained. He's just been there. He's gone to work. Well, this year, it's, it's a little more opportunistic when you put it on his plate because they got Whittington back. They got A.D. Mitchell out there. They got, hopefully, Isaiah Nayer healthy. Uh, they got that tied in. And they, so they got a lot of really, really good pieces, got good backs in the backfield, got a good quarterback. I'm saying that to say they can feed him the ball when they want to instead of just having to do it out of necessity all the time. I want to go to Washington for my number three receiver. Roma Dunze is 6'4", 215. He had 75 catches over 1,100 yards receiving last year. They, they led, Washington led all of Power 5 in passing offense, and he was the number one receiver on the team. And he's back this year. He flirted with the NFL. So I think big things are on the way from him again. He's already done it. The tight end position, I said quarterback's easy. I said wide receiver's easy. There's a look. Marvin Harrison, Xavier Worthy, Roma Dunze, Emeka Ibuka at Ohio State also really in that thing. The tight end position, the Pate State All-Americans at the tight end position, I can start nowhere but Brock Bowers. I don't need to list his accolades. You've seen him play. Would have been the number one overall tight end in the draft this year if he came out. Uh, could be their leading receiver at Georgia again this year. He was last year. He's, he's the best pass catcher they have on that team right now. But behind Brock Bowers, Jatavian Sanders is where I'm going. Uh, Jatavian Sanders, imagine the opportunities here. I just talked about him a second ago. That's why I said that tight end. Jatavian Sanders is the tight end at Texas. And I think about him the same way when Sark was at Alabama. I think about some of those tight ends that just kind of got lost in the shuffle. And then all of a sudden, there they are, 60 yards to the house. Jatavian Sanders could have a really big year. He did last year. Um, he was first team all Big 12 last year. So he's not coming out of nowhere. I just love the possibilities that are on his plate this year. So Brock Bowers, Jatavian Sanders, those are the two tight ends. Offensive line. We had to go back and forth a little bit. Do you just put all tackles or do you put a whole lot of guards at guard and a whole lot of tackles at tackle? Well, here's what we did. We took Cedric Van Pran, noted viewer of late kick, confirmed by him a couple of weeks ago. We put him at center. Also, he's really good. We put him at center. Big returning player for Georgia. Olu Fashano at offensive tackle. Penn State. Uh, Kellen, Kelvin Banks. I almost wrote Kellum. Kelvin Banks at Texas is only a second-year player. You could be using the word generational with him the more people watch him. Also got Cooper Bebe, uh, first-team All-American last year at guard. Got Zach Zenter at right guard. Could have put Joe Alt here. Could have put J.C. Latham here. Could have put Zach, Jack Frazier. Could have been in there. So it was tough to whittle that list down of All-Americans. But that is your offensive team for the Pate State preseason All-Americans. And I think we need to be fancy and we need to have trophies at the end of the year for it. And I'm just putting that out there if anyone wants to sponsor that. Uh, before we leave you tonight, I need to get some bold predictions on the record. I need to take a sip from the chalice. We did not drain it tonight. Good for me, by the way. Had a very, very spirited show the other night. First time in history that we've ever completely drained the chalice. Bold predictions, chapter 30. What do you think will happen this year that you would bet your own money on? Well, this one sounds bold, but it's not really bold. Max from Birmingham, Alabama said the ACC will not have a team in the top 20 of offensive points per game. Now you think that's one of the Power 5 conferences, a couple of preseason top 7-ish teams over there. How are they not going to have an offense in the top 20? Well, what did they do last year? Last year, they had two of them in the top 20. FSU and Wake tied at 16. So they, they snuck two of them in there last year. 
So producer Jesse walks in today. He got a look in his eyes. Ever since he came back from Albania, he's had a look in his eye a lot for different reasons. But he comes in the office today and he says, I've got the stat to end all stats in regards to the ACC. And I said, in regards to like, who talks like that? Give it to me, Jesse. So he gave it to me. He said, there are eight first year guys at offensive coordinator in the ACC, but it gets better. He said, there are five more with only one year of experience. It's a bad angle. There are only f- there, so, so do the math here. Eight plus five is 13. There are only 14 teams in the conference. So 13 of 14 offensive coordinators in the ACC have one year of experience at their current program or less, which is mind-bottling, as one of my buddies would say. Mind-boggling, as the rest of the population would say. And so what that screams is, we could have offensive inconsistency. There's been a lot of churn on offense. And yet I look back and I say, yeah, but we do have FSU. Like all we need is one in the top 20. We got FSU. We got Clemson. I'm making this a 7.75 though. Because I can see a world where this actually happens. This is a really good prediction, by the way, because we had to dig on that one. So 7.75, the ACC won't have a top 20 points per game scoring offense. Next up, this is bold, but I like it. Taylor from Merle's Inlet, South Carolina. I think we filmed some of Outer Banks up there. Taylor said, Spencer Rattler throws for 4,000 plus yards. Well, I'm telling you, that's a nine and a quarter, but I love the enthusiasm here. So that's a nine and a quarter on the boldness scale. In 2022, he had just over 3,000 passing yards in 13 games. So we got to find a spare thousand yards somewhere. Can we do it? Well, four power five quarterbacks did it last year. So it's pretty tough, but it can be done. Here's the bad news. I'm going to turn the paper sideways for this. Uh, Stats and Info tells me they face eight defenses in the preseason top 40 of S&P+. They face three in the top five. So it's not going to be easy. New offensive approach last year, though. You remember remember how there was that, that, that pesky little scoreless game offensively they had at Florida, and then they hung over half a hundred on Tennessee the next week, and we found out later... Yeah, they changed play calling. They changed offensive procedures internally, and that's why that happened. Okay, well, then they hired a new offensive coordinator, period, this year. But if you want to believe in this, if you want to believe that that Spencer Rattler could throw for 4K this year, it probably behooves you to know that in those final three games where the changes were made, he threw for 438, 360, and 246. So there was a three-game stretch after they changed their offensive approach. He threw for over 1,000 yards just in three games. So, yeah, maybe. Maybe. They'll need to throw the ball a lot this year. Not sure what they have at running back. I, I know one of their best receivers didn't scrimmage yesterday. I believe they plan on getting him back. So good wide receiver core, questionable running back group. They're going to have to throw it a lot. Still pretty bold, though, man. 4,000 yards is a lot, so I'm putting 9.25 on that as am I on this next prediction. Cooper hits us up from the home of the Gamecocks, Columbia, South Carolina. But Cooper said Arizona and Arizona State will both have winning records. Well, I don't think they will. So this is a 9.25. But let's humor ourselves for just a second. What are the win totals here? Preseason, over-unders, four and a half for each one of them. So someone's got to lose games. One of the most inconvenient truths in college football. For every winner, there has to be a loser. For that matter, in life, it pretty much works the same way. Although, I know some of you in your social circles would come back to me and say, I see more losers than winners. To that I say, get new friends. Because Meemaw told me that, and I'm just relaying it to you. But Arizona and Arizona State are like on the bottom tier of Pac-12 football this year. Or at least it looks like that on paper. So, the, the losses have to pile up somewhere. For every conference win, there has to be a conference loss. Here's the problem, as I see it. Vegas has half a dozen teams in the Pac-12 with a preseason over-under win total of eight and a half or higher. It's really crazy. So either Arizona and Arizona State are knocking off a handful of them, or they're going to just completely trade places. One of them is going to trade places, or two of them are going to trade places, or this is not going to happen. And I just tend to lean towards it's not going to happen for both of them to make the jump. You need multiple upsets. And that's tough to see. So I'm going to make it a 9.25. I, I, look, I feel the energy in both places, but having a winning record, 
like that's not even six and six. That's seven and five for each one of them. That's a 9.25 easy. Lastly, uh, the Big Ten champion, according to Max from Savannah, beautiful Savannah, Georgia. Max said the Big Ten champion will beat the SEC champion in the playoff or the national title game. So in the postseason, the Big Ten champ beats the SEC champ. It's happened one time. When was it? 2014. Exactly. Yes, you guys got it. That was Ohio State over Alabama in, I believe, the first playoff. So that was a Sugar Bowl. I remember that pretty vividly, actually. So uh, Zeke Elliott does as well. The SEC champ versus the Big Ten champ in, in the playoff. What do you think the record is head-to-head? You, you would think this has happened a lot. It hasn't. It's happened three times. And the SEC's champ is 2-1 and one against the Big Ten's champ. You're going to find SEC versus Big Ten matchups more frequently. We're talking about champ versus champ. Imagine the chirping, though. If the Big Ten pulls this off, if Michigan beats Alabama, if Ohio State beats Georgia, if, if Penn State beats LSU... The chirping, right in the middle of conference realignment, right in the middle of a time where, for some unknown reason, there are people in Madison, Wisconsin, and there are people in Auburn, Alabama, that are chanting Big Ten and SEC because, well, they're taking a wrecking ball to the rest of the sport and they're cashing checks you'll never see a dime from. Imagine the chirping in Big Ten country if this happens. I would encourage you not to participate. Silent fist bump should suffice. That's a wrap for our show tonight. I appreciate you guys so much. Remember, we're back to three shows a week. So Tuesday night, Thursday night, we're here. Make sure you're not just subscribed to the channel. Make sure five of your friends are subscribed to the channel because 200,000 subs does not come easily. And so I need you guys to help us as you always have and as I hope you always will. For Director Colin, Producer Jesse Bradley, The Associate, I'm Josh Pate. Take care. Have a great start to your week and God bless you.